You're listening to Lost or Found, the podcast where we think about how we can live healthier, happier, and more fulfilled lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Hello, and welcome back. On today's episode, Dr. Barry Armstrong and I will be talking about the second victim syndrome which runs strong amongst healthcare professionals, which is an array of negative feelings and reactions associated with a mistake or bad outcome. But I believe this syndrome can also easily be related to other fields. Physicians currently have the highest suicide rate among any profession in the U.S., and suicide is the second leading cause of death in medical students. This is clearly an indication that something is really fucked up, Nobody, no matter what age, old, young, or middle-aged, should be at a point where they prematurely kill themselves when it's not their time to die. But people are, right? It's really ironic if you think about it. We go into a profession because we want to help people. We withstand the long and vigorous schooling that it requires. We undergo the intense and grueling training. Then we start practicing clinically, and we are supposed to be healers and help others to heal, right? But then many of us end up killing ourselves? It's tremendously sad and desperate. I don't think there is one factor contributing to this. I think there are many. It's estimated that a doctor dies by suicide every day in the U.S. In the CNBC article, stress and rigorous work schedules push a doctor to commit suicide every day in the U.S. We need them, but they need us by Amy Turner. She states that the rigorous work schedule and pressure faced by U.S. doctors have them stressed to the point of breaking. In the same article, Dr. Edward Ellison, the executive medical director and chairman of the Southern California Permanente Medical Group, cited data that says, 44% of physicians display signs of burnout, which is physical and emotional exhaustion that can lead to insomnia, lack of appetite, and other mental health issues. He said a main reason healthcare professionals begin to feel burnt out is that they are often subjected to rigorous work schedules and forget about taking care of themselves. Unaddressed mental conditions driven by workload, work inefficiency, lack of meaning in work, and work-home problems are a main contributor to the high physician suicide rate, according to the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. I also believe that another contributor to this problem is the second victim syndrome. I understood the feelings associated with this syndrome, but didn't know there was a term for these array of feelings or that other people had felt like me until three years ago. The second victim syndrome is defined as the healthcare professional who commits an error and are traumatized by the event, manifesting psychological such as shame, guilt, anxiety, grief, and depression, cognitive such as burnout, secondary traumatic stress, and or physical reactions that have a personal negative impact. And second victim syndrome may not necessarily be from a medical mistake. It could also be caused by a bad outcome. If one of my patients had coded in the hospital, meaning that they stopped breathing and or their heart stopped beating, and I hadn't anticipated this, it would literally drive me into a maniacal frenzy. I would agonize to see at what point or not this could have been anticipated and possibly prevented. It would not only drive me into a panic and to the point of major self-abuse, which was always done secretly until I eventually exonerated myself when I found out after intense scrutinization that maybe there was nothing further that could have been done to prevent this outcome. However, during this time, I always looked okay on the outside. I would smile my usual smiles. I was my mostly friendly self. I looked composed, the outward persona of looking strong, 
but inside, I was a fucking mess. During my interview with Dr. Barry Armstrong, and the interview will be following this monologue here, he asks me at one point how I decided to be satisfied with the idea that I've tried my best. Having only quit my job recently as a doctor and learning to be an interviewer, sometimes I feel a little taken aback when I am also asked a question, as silly as that sounds. Perhaps I'm still a little shy, and I'm definitely on another learning curve right now, learning to interview, to listen actively, as I try to navigate the conversation. Nothing is natural. I have to work for it. But believe me, I am learning and I'm trying. So basically my point is, I believe I gave a long-winded answer during the interview. But this question has stayed with me and I've been thinking about it. Many years ago, I decided that I just had to be okay with the line of work that I am in, that I've tried my best that day. And if the answer is yes, then I can try to peacefully put my head down on my pillow and go to sleep. And as I thought about this question more, I think the complete answer is, This is the only thing I can control. I can help with a patient's course in the hospital. I cannot necessarily control every detail of it. It's just not humanly possible. But we try. They don't just suddenly get sick. It's oftentimes from years of accumulation to create that event or illness. A stroke does happen suddenly, but there was a path leading up to it. A stroke occurs when the blood supply to part of your brain is interrupted or reduced, preventing brain tissue from getting oxygen and nutrients. Prior to that stroke, there was plaque buildup in the vessels. There was an environment that needed to be created for that blood clot to develop to cause that blockage that led to the ischemic stroke. Or for a hemorrhagic stroke, it takes time for an artery in the brain to get to the point of rupture eventually to leak blood. Cancer doesn't happen overnight. Coronary artery disease takes the right environment and time to develop before you have a full-blown heart attack. In certain states right now, the number of hospitalized COVID-19 patients is causing hospitals and staff to be a near breaking point again. Doctors are pleading for help from governors for stronger responses to the pandemic. Whether or not that patient wore a mask or not in their lives, or socially distanced or not, when you get to the hospital, you are a patient, and hopefully you will get the care that you need. But when the hospitals are overwhelmed, and the medical staff feels like they are drowning more than before, how is this good for anyone? Hopefully, if you are hospitalized, you recover and get discharged to return to your life but medical staff feel and deal with the aftermath. And there have been doctors who have recovered from COVID-19 themselves, but killed themselves from the PTSD associated with the pandemic. I am not exonerating doctors for their mistakes or our mistakes, but I just wanted to let you know that even if you hate a particular doctor for what you feel they have done to you or your family member, I just wanted to let you know that we suffer too. It's often done secretly, and it is oftentimes sadistic. Chances are, your doctor may not even know how to deal with the feelings he or she is having. What you see on someone's outside may not necessarily be how they feel on the inside. When a little child dies in the hospital, I assure you, everyone is crying. Some openly, some not. We ask ourselves, Could we have fought harder? What else could we have done? What more? What more? We never forget this child. We can't. And some of the healthcare staff never recover from the guilt that they feel for the rest of their lives. I just wanted to let you know that. If the majority of us went into this field because we care, I just wanted to let you know that it's impossible to forget another human's bad outcome even if the system kills us. We carry this person forever in our lives. It's something we all have to live with, but we can learn from these mistakes so that it never happens again. We choose to do our line of work. And welcome back to the show, Dr. Barry Armstrong. 
Dr. Armstrong is a pediatrician at Kaiser Permanente San Jose Medical Center. I know him as an amazing and kind doctor, but he is not only a beacon of light for his patients and their families, but he is also a beacon of light for other doctors at his institution who are secretly suffering. Welcome back to the show, Barry. It's really good to see you again. It's great to be here again, Michelle. Thanks for having me. Thank you. And today we'll be talking about second victim syndrome. What does that mean, Barry, second victim syndrome? Well, it means that there's the patient and it is centered around an unexpected or untoward outcome towards the patient. So that there's a mistake that's made on behalf of the physician towards the patient. And so the patient is considered the first victim. And the physician is considered the second victim. So that's kind of the definition of second victim syndrome. And I think we'll, today we'll probably talk more about the syndrome and its impact on the physician. Um, we're pretty clear about what it is for the patient receiving some treatment that may not have been optimal despite the best intentions by the physician. And it could relate to the whole healthcare team as well. Oh, right? definitely. Definitely. Like the um, pharmacist doctor, the nursing staff. Totally. Like, and you, you work in the hospital, so there's a whole team of people who work with patients in the hospital. In the ER, there's a whole team of people. And for myself, I, I look at second victims in a broader sense because um, it doesn't always have to be a mistake that was made. Anytime something happens to a patient that we don't expect or we don't really want to see happen, despite all our good work and not having made a mistake, there's suffering again on the part of the patient and on the part of the physician. Yeah, I think there's things sometimes, you know, that's not that can't be predicted. The Definitely. unpredictable that happens in a case. Yes. I think almost all of us have experienced, you know, second victim syndrome. I know I have. Um, and I, you know, it's to different degrees. I've made mistakes with patients. And then there have been times where I haven't made mistakes with patients and the outcome or what happened two days later was totally not what I thought would happen. And I often feel bad that I couldn't have foreseen that or didn't have the expansiveness to foresee that. But most people in my shoes wouldn't have foreseen that either. So it wasn't clearly a mistake, but you feel bad. Exactly. And I think, you know, I think we're really lucky to be in a stage where we're talking about this because I think, you know, doctors have experienced this for a really long time, but they've suffered secretly. Definitely. And there's a component where there could have been a mistake or it could be something that we as physicians didn't predict, but there's an element of almost like a God syndrome where we're supposed to know everything or even predict everything when that's just not possible. Well, thanks for bringing that up because I think especially now in the era of COVID, a lot of healthcare workers and physicians included are considered heroes or, you know, these like super <laughs> powered heroes. And, and that's not the case at all. And it's, I think, a mistake to put us in that position. And I think it's a mistake because it, it makes us like, oh, we have superpowers. We're not human beings. We're, we are godlike. So, you know, it puts us in a place that's not realistic because we are human beings. Exactly. We're no different than any other. Exactly. The only yeah. difference is that, you know, this is something that our mutual friend Heidi told me once when one of our friends was feeling badly about an incident that had occurred. And she was telling me, or she was telling us rather, that we as physicians choose to stand out on a ledge for these patients that come into our lives. We may or may not necessarily know them, 
but their path brought them to us. And we choose to stand out on the ledge with them. But the problem about standing on a ledge with people that you don't know is sometimes you can also fall with them. Yeah. And I think with our you know, medical field, some of us never recover from that fall. The fact that there is like huge psychological trauma when something goes not as we wished or hoped for for that patient. Yeah, precisely. I agree with what you're saying. And I think there are some inherent issues within our training, within the medical system, that help create this sad situation for our our fellow physicians. Yeah, on many levels, I think, like residency. Well, even before you get to residency, even before you get to medical school, we kind of Mm self-select for perfection. We have to be the best. You know, we have to be a close to a straight-A student or a straight-A student with many other extracurricular activities and just shining all the time. That's what gets us into medicine, right? Or pretending to be the best, but knowing that you're not the best and feeling the shame that's associated with that. Yeah, that's, the flip like side, that's the flip side of the coin. <laughs> and, and not being aware of, of those dynamics. Exactly. So we're, we're kind of... We ourselves and the system create this kind of personality of perfectionism, of do no wrong, and it it puts us in a very vulnerable state. Like you said, medical school, residency, those behaviors and those um, I don't know that psyche is reinforced, and and that's not it creates an abnormal kind of coping um, mechanisms for physicians. So we want to be perfectionistic. And when we make a mistake, we go in a hole, we isolate ourselves. And for many of us, that can be devastating because we haven't made the connections. We're so competitive. We haven't made the connections with our colleagues, with our other people who can support us. And I think that is the movement right now that we're trying to face and overcome. You know, Barry, you bring up a lot of important points. But before I ha- go into my other questions, I'd like to ask you, do you think any physician has the intention to harm? No, no, none of the physicians I know. I mean, you look sometimes there's some news story of a nurse who's... The very abnormal, sadistic that's one. <laughs> a, that's like, you know, that's really out there. But... No, physicians go into medicine by and large to help people and to, uh, it's a, I think of a, a really wonderful intention with, you know, when they were younger, they decided, oh, I want to be a doctor. I want to help people. I want to serve. And yet we're not equipped to help ourselves in those times that where it's most important. We're not equipped to reach out. It's kind of beaten out of us. Yeah, and I think this may not be something that our listeners may know, but when someone is in the hospital, families may get angry about the outcome or something that happened. Mm -hmm. But there is no doubt that there is a second victim. Like, a lot of times physicians suffer as much. Like, we don't look like it because we've been reared to hide it. But we really suffer. Like, there's times when, when I was working with you, Um, when I was part of the well-being committee, Mm -hmm. there were times when I worked as a hospitalist. You know, you would go home that night and you would wake up and get to work and this patient would end up in the ICU or have like a very different outcome than you had imagined when you left home. Or not even be there because they died. Or they died, yeah. yeah. I would beat myself up terribly over that to the point of like, the agonizing was almost to the point of sickness. Yeah. Like when I had moments or, you know, in between patients, I would continue to rip up that chart to see where I could have predicted this or where I could have gone wrong. And maybe the family would say, that is what should happen. That is what should happen. But it was to the point of sickness. Yeah. Like I didn't tell anyone I was agonizing over this, you know? So what, what happens is we start playing the story over and over again and, and uh, kind of perseverating on the whole thing. And it's, it can get very, very deep and interfere with our continued care for our patients, 
definitely continued care for ourselves. And if you don't talk to someone and it goes on and on, it can result in um, many doctors leave the practice. It literally shakes you. Yeah. You know, some doctors start using substances or alcohol or some other maladaptive um, method. Some kill themselves. They go into depression and never come out of it. So the outcome, it's, it's a big deal. It's a huge deal. And the system really hasn't developed a robust way to deal with this, you know, second second victims syndrome, um, they traditionally have not been there. Um, things are changing. In the in the year two thousand, twenty years ago, that's when this this second victim syndrome first started being talked about, and now many many medical centers do have um, peer support, and that's. I'd like to talk more about that at some point because doctors generally don't like to go to immediately to get help with mental health services. And they do connect with their peers, their fellow doctors, and they're much more comfortable talking because they've been in the same trenches and their fellow doctors understand. So that's why we're developing these peer support Groups. It's like this hero persona is like literally incapacitating. Yes, and it incarcerates yes, it, us. Yes, it it it's the Achilles heel, really. Yeah, I think the system it could be part of the problem as well. Definitely to the errors that are made, and recently, you know, um, the insti- there was the Institute of Medicine's report to Air is Human. And they talk about, you know, place, and they basically place a big spotlight of the estimated 98,000 preventable annual deaths that occur from medical errors. And basically, this project asserts that this huge number stems not from bad people in healthcare, but instead from good people working in a, in a bad and complex system. Yeah. Yeah, I read that last night, too. And um, it's startling. Hospitals or a dangerous place. <laughs> and it's like, totally, it's like part of the culture. You know, they finger point on one person, but it could be the whole system. That's right. But right. It's like because this- the system has been often punitive in so many ways or turning their back and yeah. not being there for their foundation. Healthcare workers is the foundation of a healthcare system. It's a team effort to take care of someone. Always, you know? always it's never a team just effort. the doctor. It's yeah, never just yeah, the nurse. Exactly. So you know, the bed um, is run by the hospital. Yeah. You know, but even like in terms of our training, the idea of M and M, you know, morbidity and mortality conference, that could be a very useful conference. You know, learning be. about what went wrong and what could be better, or learning from our mistakes that occurred. But in a outcome. healthy way, in an open and kind and reassuring and, and know, knowing that the intentions, the best intentions were there, as, as the report stated, the author of the report, Don Berkowitz, stated. Yeah. But however, mm. it's never kind and, you know. No, it's, it's actually a, a hazing process that is. we went through. And, you know, the number of residents who have to go up in front of everyone and present that case. And there was one resident who, was, who had been talking about, um, I guess he hadn't predicted the cardiac tamponade in, on an EKG. And the judgment and the finger pointing at him for not, for not being able to pick that out. But literally, Barry, like, it's been many years out. I had to look up the EKG criteria for a cardiac tamponade. Like, I don't remember like, what's wrong with our culture to think that you that one resident perfect, should know at right that very moment? Right out of the moment. womb, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know? Like, it wasn't just one person that didn't pick it up. It must have been multiple. But the finger pointing to that one person, and some people just never recover from that. Like, I think we as doctors are lucky that we have peers that we can talk with. I think in, the, in terms of residents or residency, I feel like they have less support. There's more judgment, yeah, and they know I, less. Yeah, it's true. There's there's a high rate of mental health issues in medical school and residency. 
and a higher than average rate of suicide in those areas as well as are once you get out. You know, I noticed that, that when we talk about this topic, I was laughing a little bit. And I think that's like just my nervousness and, 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 and it comes out in laughter. This is not a laughing matter at all. This is, this is serious stuff. And um, we, we put up defenses around this to, to try and uh, to, to deal with it. It's, such, it's a problem that runs so deep. And the problem is that a lot of pa- doctors secretly suffer. Yeah. They don't tell anyone. Yeah. I mean, we were lucky that in our facility, at least there was some idea and thought that something like this exists and that you can go for support or you can call someone. But the number of medical facilities that probably don't have this support. Well, even when you have the support, it's kind of passive. You can put it out there. Doctors aren't going to call. By and large, doctors are independent, again, perfectionistic. They usually don't want to admit that to someone else that they've made a mistake or they were less than 100% on that day. And who's ever 100%? You look at sports teams, you look at all the professions. It's just asking too much. And so, yeah, you, you brought up the point of isolation. Doctors are, are, you know, very good at isolating themselves. And it's not that they want to, but they don't have the tools. They haven't developed the tools to reach out. Unfortunately, I, I'll talk about some of the programs we have at our medical center. There is uh, several times a week we have a RISE program program, which stands for Resilience in Stressful Events. And that's a place where you can come have lunch, and now it's done virtually. And you just join the virtual group, and it's actually been quite successful. You can come with whatever's on your mind. And some, some, and many, many times we've had uh, physicians who've actually talked about their challenges or having made a mistake or losing a patient. Um, So these things have been, I think, helpful for me. Even if I've had a bad day with with my wife or something, it's a place where I could come and and talk about, you know, oh, today's not so great. And and be amongst friends who kind of share a shared history and and what we go through. To be honest. Yeah, just to be open. So that itself is liberating, refreshing. I really think it's true. I mean, there wasn't only one incident like when I would suffer secretly. There have been many. Oh, yeah. You know, and I never told anyone. I'm sorry. I would have like hours. I mean, I would have like days where I would just kind of agonize. My husband would kind of know something was up. But, you know, it's like sometimes when you share work, it's kind of like almost oversharing. Like they can't handle it either, you know. So, so you would secretly I, take it in. <laughs> I remember um, on this line um, of, of thought, families, like I remember when I had a very, very difficult case and I tried to share it with my wife and she couldn't map onto it. And in fact, she was worried that I might lose her job and she, she went down that she was worried that you would lose yeah. your job. Yeah, because I'd made a mistake. And she was worried about the repercussions for the family and the economic, you know, uh, issues that, that might happen. It was like almost too highly rational when you needed empathy. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's not what I needed, you know. <laughs> so, again, coming back to peer support, it was much more helpful when I talked to my colleagues, you know, and, and at, during that time, I, I, I couldn't really talk to anyone about this. Um, there were just a few that showed their concern and I felt they cared. And that made a huge difference. I still remember those people to this day. Because we've all felt it. We've all been through that. We've all, I, I believe we've, um, most of us have been through it uh, to some degree or at some level. I think sometimes people hide it better than others, but I don't think this is an uncommon feeling. I think in the majority of us, you know. Oh, definitely. 
Yeah, and, I mean, the, all the physicians I've talked to have suffered from uh, second victim syndrome. Yeah. I think this is like our entry as a physician into like shame, guilt, anxiety, depression, mm-hmm. feeling loss of control, like losing like the nerve to practice, you mm-hmm. know, like totally being shaken. And some of us don't recover from it. Right. Yeah, some of us just leave leave the field completely. Or they kill themselves. They, that is also... And okay. we're the number one group that kills themselves. Right. Yeah, unfortunately. Don't you think, Barry, like, we as physicians, like, we don't want to make a mistake. But the ultimate truth is we're human. We're no different than any other, and mistakes can happen like everyone else. And I think when these mistakes happen, we have to own it, figure out what went wrong, also be merciful to ourselves and learn not to make these mistakes again. Yeah, that's the only way. And the first step is to acknowledge, like you said, to err as human, to we are human beings. We're not superheroes. We're not gods. We're not what some people set us up to be or what we set ourselves up to be. We are human and we make mistakes. And acknowledging that and being aware of that is the first step. And at the same time, medicine requires the attempt to be perfect. We may not always be perfect, but we always want to be perfect. And we want to do a good job. We want to heal and help others. Um, But yes, mistakes will happen. And it's on that other side, when mistakes do happen, that things fall short. And like we said, we're we're designed not to really learn how to cope, not to learn how to really reach out, but to isolate. The system isn't there to support us. So bad things. From the beginning and to the end, perhaps. Bad things can happen. I like to think that things are changing a bit. Um, in the system. It does have to start with the system. I mean, resilience, personal resilience, you can't um, completely rely on personal resilience. The system has to create a structure um, of support and care and love for their physicians, nurses, and, and all healthcare staff. And that's traditionally sorely been lacking and it's so ironic because healthcare and healing, it's about giving, you know, with the, the mind and the heart. And if you don't have a system that gives that back, there's something wrong. I think sometimes that's the indication of something being broken. I agree. And time to do something about it. I wish there's, you know, one word that we could take out of our language. And this word is everywhere. Perfect perfection. I think no one can strive for perfection. It's just an impossible goal. We can strive, but to be perfect, I think, is, is, I I agree. I mean, we can always strive to do better. Like you said, we can learn. We can learn from our mistakes. I think that I've learned from my mistakes. I've, um, and part of that learning is talking to others and reflecting and bouncing back and and um, someone you trust and um, not going into the hole of isolation. But yes, um, the first step is acknowledging and still loving yourself and knowing that you're human. And I think the second step after you do the healing with yourself and others together, the second step is to reflect and see what you might have changed, what you might change. That's the human way to do it. But I think in our day-to-day, we can try our best. Yeah. That's possible. Yeah. Try our best and learn. Yeah. But to aim to be perfect, it's just really impossible. No one is perfect. That's true. Because then, because if you're perfect, you take away the possibility of making a mistake. And who doesn't make a mistake? I can, like, barely remember what my kids Mm -hmm. need to do every single day. (laughs) I loved what Pamela, um, Pamela Weibel, like you, you know, she's an advocate for physicians' well-being, and she's a voice for physician suicide. She talks about three ways in which to not respond to a medical error. And number one is do not die by suicide. Number two is do not respond with self-abuse. 
And number three is don't wait decades to share your trauma. You know, I, I would like to comment on the last first. I've noticed for myself whenever there's um, – and again, these are outcomes like oh, I had a patient who was diagnosed with – well, hasn't been diagnosed yet, but she's a toddler and she's losing her, her developmental milestones. And the, naturally, the mom is just distraught. She's, you know um, – not able to speak anymore, and and she is not able to do the things that she was doing. And I felt so bad about this case. And I think immediate the for me the the sooner I talk about it with others um, about the situation and how distressful it is, the less I feel like. I'm going to become depressed or um, just talking about it right away is really important and just getting it out. Um, So I try to do that with – there are some trusted colleagues I have who I talk to. And that's such a healthy approach to it. Yeah, Because I think in medicine there's a burden that we choose to carry because ultimately we care. But sometimes we don't know what to do with that burden. It's like – the patient doesn't only suffer, but a good doctor will also suffer. That's right. And so we need to to also care for ourselves and heal ourselves, I agree. And not, uh, yeah, there was nothing I could do for this child. And that helplessness is also painful because we're designed as, as physicians to fix things and make things better. And that's another kind of hook that that happens when we can't fix things. Oh man, we 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 really have a hard time just because we're trained, you know, that way. And and if you look at the whole world, the, the whole world is imperfect, and you know, there's all kinds of things that sometimes beautiful, sometimes catastrophic. And we're a part of that, too, and our patients are a part of that. We can't control everything. And I think acknowledging that and being um, aware of that is very important. And not on the other side, not being flippant or just dismissive about it. Of course we care and being there for the patient. But we can't fix everything. Yeah, there's things that we can't magically say go away or make it go away. As much as we'd like. Yeah. I think with like, you know, everything that I experienced as a physician, the only way I felt like I could really put my head down at night, because I was like suffering like so much. There were times, you know, there were times when I would be so sadistic that I realized the only thing I could say to myself after every evening was, did you try your best? And if my answer was yes, even if there were things that were incorrect, if at that moment, if I felt that was the right decision, there was nothing else I could do if I knew I tried my best. Yeah, It was like my own way of showing mercy to myself. Good for you that you were able to do that and find that place in you where you could allow yourself to be that one question, yeah. one daily question every single day. Yeah. Because sometimes I feel like in medicine, it's kind of like a spur of the moment kind of, you know, spur of the moment where you have to make a decision. It may or may not be the right decision, but you have to make a decision right now, here, now. Yeah. I'm curious, Michelle, how you got to that place where you um, were able to ask yourself that question. Do you remember how that evolved? how you got to the place where you started asking yourself, did I do my best? I mean, I think it probably... the answer is yes. I think it was probably like multiple cases where I felt so bad. It would affect me during the day. My heart was palpitating. You know, I had so much anxiety. It was affecting my sleep. But I would look okay on the outside. I would always look okay. But like I was like to the point of tears on the inside, but I would never cry at work because I didn't want to show anyone that I was weak. And especially coming from a woman, you don't want to show tears in the hospital because mm. there's judgment. Mm. But I needed to get to a point where 
I needed to like have some sacred space. Like when I was at home, I didn't, I wanted to kind of put those thoughts away. Mm. And I realized how, I realized how maybe how imperfect I was. And the only way I could kind of come up with a question to make myself feel better was that question. Have I done enough? Did I try my best that time? Did I try my best today? And if the answer was yes, there could have been a wrong decision. But if you felt that decision was correct at that moment in time, then that was the answer. You know, no one else was there. I had to make a decision. And I think that's really hard. It's like a lot of people I feel secretly suffer, firefighters, police officers, nurses. You know, we're all in that moment where we don't know what to do. But did you try your best? And that patient may survive or not. That victim may survive or not. That fire victim. Mm -hmm. That's a way in which I felt I could put my head down on my pillow and close my eyes. I think it's worth emphasizing, especially if we have healthcare workers listening today, the what you were going through, like um, sleep. Like oftentimes when we we go through this uh, trauma, our own personal trauma with with our patients, uh, our sleep is affected, um, our appetite is affected, um, our ability to focus at work is affected, um, our mood is affect, can be affected. Um, and so if you find that, uh, you're going through those kinds of things, um, it's time, it's, it's time to, to recognize that and let your body and mind tell you, oh, this is a message. I need help. The other thing that I heard from you is that you, you have a sacred space or you mentioned sacred space. Sacred space, um, is really, really important for all of us, all human beings, and especially those of us who um, are healthcare workers or, you know, police officers, um, firefighters, EMTs, all service-oriented professions. So. And I think the real answer is I was sick of suffering. Like I could continue to suffer or make the choice where that's enough. You know, I've never not learned from a case that went, inc- went wrong you know, or things that I couldn't predict. I ripped it up so, I ripped it up like microscopically, looking at the timing of the nursing response, the calls that were being made. Mm -hmm. Like it was to that level. Like Yeah, so we get really hyper um, vigilant. That's another symptom of of second victims. And in the age of like computers, everything is recorded. You can find it, you know. But I would look into it so specifically. It really... It really made me crazy. Yeah. It shook my it shook me to the core and I was shaken and I felt like I couldn't perform as a human or as a doctor. Yeah, you're you're describing the manifestations of second victim syndrome perfectly. Yeah. It's uh, perseveration and hypervigilance and um, isolation, questioning yourself. Um, all these are symptoms of that. And the question also comes down to this. Did we have the intention to harm? You know, there are basic questions. Did you have the intention to harm? Did you try your best? Yeah. If those are your answers, then there are just things that we can't predict or, or control. control. Yeah. Like sometimes really like we fall off the edge too with that patient, but we choose to hold their hand. And I think that's what people don't recognize. A firefighter goes into a fire to save someone that he or she does not know. But they, he and goes they, in there. And they put their lives at risk. Exactly. That. No one else went in there. That firefighter went in there. And whatever the outcome, that firefighter still went in there. But then sometimes that firefighter never recovers from whatever the outcome was, even though he or she went into there. Right. And I think of our physicians like you, Michelle, and all those who work in the hospital and the emergency room during this COVID time. And all of those people in this country and around the world, we were basically being slammed. And it's like going into a fire. I mean, people are dying in front of our colleagues. Um, and and it's, it's really tough right now for, for our colleagues. And um, 
the response isn't to say they're heroes. The response is to be, to me, to, to me, the response is to be as a human, to be responsible, to wear a mask, to take care of yourself and your family and your community. Exactly. We're all connected. Even yeah. the idea of, you know, the hospitals are overwhelmed right now. Yeah. You know, at least it's not like New York, but we're close to there, like New York in March. Well, who knows what, what it'll become like exactly. around in here. January, but I'm, guess, I'm talking yeah. about, you know, even in the hinterlands where they're not prepared and the hospitals are over capacity. Um, my heart goes out to the nurses and doctors and all the, the health um, related workers. Um, it's, pe- it's traumatic. And I think people can help each other and help doctors and nurses if they socially distance, take care of themselves so they remain, that they stay healthy. If you maintain your health, then you don't have to come into the hospital. And we can continue to treat our patients, hopefully in an effective manner, and treat them. But when, once the hospitals are overwhelmed, I think the quality of care decreases because we are overwhelmed. So it's, we it's, can only uh, do so much. There's a lot of uh, what I would call second victim syndrome going on right now. The disturbing images that I read about um, from my colleagues who are working in the hospital. So my heart goes out to them. Do you think that they're getting, um, they're taking care of themselves? No, I don't think they have the capacity to take care of themselves. They're stretched beyond their limits and... Many are, are, many, many are burnt out. And once you start on the road to burnout, you, you know, there are several options. One is to um, keep going at a diminished level. Um, Another option is to just go away and quit. Um, And then another option is to... But many are afraid to make that decision to quit. Yeah. The other option is is an option of default. Be, go deeper into depression, and as we've seen, and just ignore uh, it. Ignore but it's still it, there. and and sometimes um, get rid of the pain through suicide. And we know of of people who have done that. Many, or alcohol many, and many, drugs. Yeah, yeah. So it's a distressing situation we're in right now, and I don't think most of us in, in our communities are aware of how distressing it is for our colleagues in, in the hospitals and the ED departments and, and, and I the think ICUs. There, and I think there are physicians who don't also quite understand what that feeling is sometimes. It's like they feel the effects of it, but they haven't worked out what it could mean, why they're feeling that way. It's like a foreign language that we as physicians could feel badly. Yeah, I think part, it's no fault to them, in my opinion. I think it's, again, a fault of the system. And, of course, we're part of the system. But it's the fault of the system in not preparing us for these vulnerabilities that we have, not preparing us to learn how to talk to learn how to reach out to our colleagues, to set up peer support groups, to, um, you know, it, it should be happening in medical education and residency. And fortunately it is, we're, you know, I work with a Budland group in family practice um, with the residents. And that's where we talk about patients and um, the feelings of uh what comes down for us when we work with a challenging, difficult situation. So there are changes, and um, I just want them to keep coming faster and faster. Don't you think sometimes in the system and even amongst ourselves, there's like a false notion that we're almost not human, we're invincible? Yeah, it goes back to that hero kind of mentality and not allowing ourselves to be fully human. And to me, that's just so, so wrong. Um, Because it's like cutting off your leg. It's cutting off an emotional part of you that is a very, very integral part of you and that we need to be whole. And so... um, And we continue to bleed. Yeah. 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 As you walk down the hospital hallway. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but again, uh, we don't show that. We we may not even be aware of that. 
Um, and if we are aware of it, we often put on a good face and keep marching as a good soldier would. And it is, it's, yeah, the, the analogy a, of war mm -hmm. is very, very apt here. Yeah. The, good soldier um, the good soldier mentality, definitely, yeah, or analogy. The, yeah, the, we are considered frontline. We hear frontline physicians often. That's a war metaphor. Um, and, you know, the good soldier doesn't stop fighting. You don't, don't worry about yourself because there's the battle to be fought. Um, and that's how, you know, that's another kind of image of, of what we've created um, in medicine. But we're worried. We're afraid. We're anxious. Yeah. Some of us are depressed. Yeah. And God knows what else. Yeah. But uh, I think a lot of systems say now is not the time. And... Uh, there's nothing we can do. You need to keep doing your job. And, you know, even if I inspect it more, Michelle, I wonder if there's been a kind of a devil's handshake here where we as physicians have made the handshake to get prestige, to get a good financial kind of support. You know, we're paid pretty well. And um, to... We've, we've kind of made that handshake in, in sacrifice um, for being whole. We see patients very rapidly. Um, we were talking earlier before we started about how quickly, um, you know, doing these video visits online, they happen like bam, bam, bam. And it is so fatiguing. Um, and we have a system that... Um, generates a lot of income for the healthcare system and for physicians, and, and we kind of go along with that, where it may not be the best way to treat. And going back to Pamela Wibble, she created a community practice that works for her. I don't think she has a lot of time constraints. Is she making huge amounts of money? Probably not, but she's happy. She's happy. Yeah, and I, I think, you know... We have to kind of reflect what do we really want in the ideal world? I, I mean, don't I don't think I'm just I've, putting that out there. Yeah. I don't think I've ever told you or I'm not sure. But the way I felt about primary practice is that there's like a cattle farm mentality to it. It's like one after another, after another, after another, to the point where the, where the patient's barely speaking. You're barely, you know, doing anything. And it's like to the other patient. Yeah. And that human connection is lost for the sake of the number of patients in the day. And that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, I think it's overwhelming for the physician. Like in between patients, um, we don't have time to breathe. That's why I love the bathroom. We don't have time to breathe. And, uh, and then the patients pick up on that. The only time I feel like we as physicians have time to breathe, if we choose to go to the bathroom by ourselves. That moment on the toilet is your time. <laughs> <laughs> I remember you saying that before. I remember that. That's all yours. <laughs> and then when you're done with the toilet paper, that time's gone. <laughs> you know, Barry, when I, when I used to work in the hospital, like, as a career, um, before I recognized what coping mechanisms were, at the end of the day, I would always feel like I had nothing left to give. Like, there was nothing more in me. And I would go home to take care of my family, but I had nothing. Yeah. I think, uh, Michelle, you are not alone there. I, I also um, remember when I first started out in medicine, um, and even, you know, even to this day, um, there are days when I have uh, not a lot to give. My wife will want to talk about certain things that she's, experience during her day and I just am not able to be present to her conversation um, this still happens um, and uh, when you're working and giving and giving and giving um, it's hard it's hard to be there for yourself first and then for your family so you talked about a sacred space and I'd like to go back to that if we could 
that we all need a sacred space. And we need that in our personal lives and we need that at work. And the only way I think we're going to get it at work um, in a broad, coherent kind of uh, universal way that affects the whole system is if the system recognizes um, the pain and suffering that our, uh, their, the healthcare workers face. I would say to the audience, um, if you're a healthcare worker um, and you have experienced anything that Michelle and I are talking about, um, first recognize that this is a r real issue and then um, reflect on that and then talk to your colleagues about what their experiences have been and then gather, gather together and approach your, your managers and, and your administrators, um, the people who lead our systems. It may not be a quick fix. I don't think it will be. But like I said, there are groups um, and hospitals that are making a difference now medical centers. Um, and I, I like to think that my hospital is, and medical center is one of those who's, who's walking down the path to, to wholeness and healing. Um, but the system is really important. Of course, individual sacred space is also important, and, and we can create that for ourselves um, through different activities. Um, I mean, for me, if I don't get some exercise every day, um, that, that is fundamental, I think, to the human body and organisms, and it connects with the mind. So um, it, it may not be thought of as a sacred space, but it can allow our body and mind to move to a sacred space, to just get some of that energy out that we have. Um, I'm just thinking of yesterday when I was just sitting and working in front of the computer, meeting patients and phone visits and video visits back to back to back. And that was one of the days when, yes, I wasn't able to hear my wife <laughs> express her, um, you know, dealings of the day. But um, when I got out on the tennis court and played tennis and worked out my uh, kind of pent up uh, pretzel-like um, confinement and just let it all go, that allowed me to be back in my body. And when you're back in your body, you can get back to the present moment. You can do your meditation. You can do, um, and meditation is one of the things that um, work for me. Um, yoga is, is another form that can work for people. I use that as a part of my sacred space and um, relationships, you know, relationships are part of, a big part of the sacred space. Again, I've mentioned many times connecting with people we trust, people we know care. And I think when you get to a point where you feel empty like that, you know, sometimes the hardest thing to do is connecting with another or listening to another human being. And I think that's a time where we have to remember like you say, to take care of ourselves. And I think it's not just a one-time thing. You know, I think in anyone in any field, because I think the second victim syndrome can be related to any other field. We, when you feel like that, you have to recognize it and take care of yourselves. And it's a maintenance. Definitely burnout yeah. is part of many, many fields. Um, I think so many human beings have experienced burnout. Like, we are not alone. No. You are not alone. No, I think this is a topic that can be related to by all people. And, and people who aren't in the healthcare professions, what can they do? Bring it up to your, your physician from time to time. Mm -hmm. um, doctor, are you taking care of yourself? Or how are you doing today, um, the nurse who's taking your blood pressure? I hope you're taking care of yourself. And, or even saying, oh, I've heard about the second victim's topic. Um, have you heard of it? And does your community subscribe to doing something about it? You can bring that up. And I think it's as easy as this. If someone is looking badly, 
they may ultimately be feeling badly. <laughs> it's simple. Like that, you know, sometimes the way one looks does not lie. Or the, the you may pick up on it by the tone of voice or, um, <laughs> or uh, yeah, an expression. Um, exactly. And to just really to recognize words. how you feel, you know, and reach out to other people, counselors or exercise, meditation. I think it has to be a daily maintenance. Yeah, on one of my patients um, yesterday, I had a conversation in the morning and with a parent, and then I saw that she had scheduled another appointment in the afternoon. And despite me, you know, um, having emailed back and forth several times, and it was like, man, I really wanted to pull my hair out. And... Um, and being able to recognize that, wow, okay, I'm at my limit now. Um, what can I do for myself in these few seconds, you know? Um, like you said, to reflect what triggers us and when we're triggered. Not to be harsh about it, but to be kind and compassionate. And to feel it, like you have enough. Yeah. You know? And putting your hand on your heart. And yeah. Saying, oh, this is a moment of suffering for me. This is what it feels like to suffer. Having that awareness and that presence to do that. I love that. The idea of self-compassion at any moment. Yes. Well, that's, uh, that's something that's kind of worked out of us again. And... Uh, Especially, you know, Michelle, if we come from families where that's not um, a big part of our culture, and even in families where it is part of our culture, it, it, the, the medical system pushes us to not um, to care for others but not care for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Or and, even the notion of feeling that yeah. we're almost less of doctors, less of a doctor if we feel. If we express our feelings or, or yeah. even share that we do feel. We feel vulnerable when we do that. We feel very vulnerable. And yet that is the, that's the treasure we really need to be sink, seeking to become whole and to become complete and to become, in my opinion, better doctors and better healers. And I really believe that if you feel, that's how you'll become a better doctor. I agree. Because you'll remember to, that no matter what, to continue to care. And we'll be able to connect with, with others at that level. Because if we don't connect, if we don't feel ourselves and our, our patient is expressing feeling and emotion, it's going to be hard for us to connect with them if we don't know what that experience is like. Yeah, and I think if we feel and you care, that's how you see beyond what is presented in front of you. Yeah, that is the art of medicine. And it, I feel that informs us to get to often a diagnosis and to healing. Because, you know, if I'm caring for my patient, Michelle, I'm going to stay with that patient and I'm going to be connected and I'm, I'm not going to forget at some level that patient's going to be with me and I'm going to keep pursuing helping that patient to find out what's wrong or get, getting the answer for the patient. And that's what creates such a wonderful, that's why I'm in medicine. It's what creates a bond between me and my patient. That's why I continue. I could have retired, but um, that's oh, why. I, when could you have retired? <laughs> it's a, th- a few years ago. Wow, I didn't know that. <laughs> you are amazing. <laughs> I'm still at it. Because um, most doctors choose to retire and you didn't. But I do. I mean, we talked about the downside and the dark side of medicine, but I still get so much out of it. And it's really my patient's. And to, to, to some degree, my colleagues that keep me coming back, um, that connection that, that we, we have with each other. I think ultimately this is a message that we cannot forget. We are human. We are human. Yeah. We have to stand in that. I agree. And demand um, from the system and from ourselves that we deserve, we deserve to take care of ourselves and to be taken care of when we need that care. We have that right. It's a human right 
Um, and that's one of the things that keeps me going um, in physician well-being and our peer support groups is um, to share that message with my colleagues. Because I think ultimately moments like this in a doctor's life are moments in which to become a better doctor. Not to kill you, but these are moments in which to learn how we can become a better doctor by learning from moments like this. And I think it's, it's almost, um, it doesn't follow our linear kind of path of thinking. We think that, oh, to become a better doctor, I need to read five, five journal articles a night um, so that I can stay on top of this. Um, it's almost contrary to common belief that actually um, introspection, going to the sacred space, will make us a better doctor. And thank you very so much. It was such an interesting conversation. Thank you for being a beacon of light, and thank you for your smarts. Oh, thank you, Michelle. It's a pleasure to be here. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please don't forget to subscribe, tell your friends, and write us a great review. For more information, visit our website, drlostorfound.com.